Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Caitlin Meyer, author of Wiving, a memoir of loving than leaving the patriarchy. We speak to Caitlin today about her experience growing up Mormon, leaving the church, and the role of religion, gender, and sex on shaping her own experience of womanhood. Our conversation also explores Caitlin's struggle to understand and negotiate her status as wife and wiving, and how this concept both informed and shaped her trauma, relationships, and healing journey. We consider the ways in which these patterns are shared by all women, while also envisioning a way to break the cycle of suffering. Welcome, Caitlin. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here, Terry. The fact that you're joining us from across the ocean. <laughs> I'm so envious. That was the first thing I thought about when you reminded me of your location. You're you're somewhat insulated <laughs> from the manifestations of patriarchy over there. Yes, certain kinds of manifestations of patriarchy. But I'm in a smaller city, medieval city in the historic center, and it's it's a very patriarchal culture still, and it shows so. It's, it's interesting, especially since my, my linguistic skills are not fantastic yet. Um, so it's, uh, it's interesting to, to find myself um, so watched everywhere I go by men. Well, so that's actually how you started your book in yeah. the introduction. Um, and then... Uh, where was that moment relative to the present? Was that a year ago or, or more recent than that? That was about a year and a half ago when I very first moved here. Um, I, lived in a, I lived in a seaside town at the time. Okay. So can you describe that, that opening scene? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, I was new to this, to this seaside town, and uh, I'd found a coffee shop to read in. And that's one of my favorite things to do is read and write in coffee shops um, or bars or wherever I happen to be. Um, And, uh, and a man came up to me and started chatting with me. And at first it was fine because I'm new in town. And, but then I started, there's that, that moment when it shifts, when you realize that the attention is the, the energy is changing from just friendly attention to, I want something from you. And that's when I said, well, it's time for me to go. And he said, well, let me give you a ride. What part of town do you live in? And I, I kind of gestured largely over there. <laughs> said, no, thank you. I don't want a ride. No, but really, let me give you a ride. And there was, there was the back and forth where he just really, really wanted to give me a ride. Um, And it had that kind of paternalistic feel, like I'm doing this for your own good because you don't want to be walking alone at night. But 
one of the things that I've learned is that it's very often safer to be walking alone at night than to be in a car with a man you don't know. You state at the beginning of that scene that you're 50, so your age is, you know, definitely prominent in it. And this conversation that you're having in your head is that this man who's basically, you know, harassing you, engaging in street harassment, is his intention is in his mind positive because he's offering you a happy, quote unquote, happy ending as a single woman in her, as a, as a middle-aged single woman who appeared to be not in a relationship, that he was doing you a favor. Yeah. And the, and the narrative is that, that of course, I'm, I'm a 50-year-old unattached woman, therefore, that's a sad story. And, and he can fix that for me. And I love how you end that with the phrase, being a woman is hazardous. And, you know, I think that that's a theme that basically resonates in many ways throughout the rest of the book. How is being a woman hazardous under the Mormon church? How is that different from being a woman in general in America? (laughs) Um, When I was growing up Mormon, I understood myself as being different, separate, not separate, but different from the rest of the world. And there's a Actually, Mormons say about themselves, we are in but not of the world. But what I found when I did finally leave the church was that Mormonism is just a very concentrated version of America and the, the larger gender structures. But this religious basis for a woman's role in the home is it's it's biblical and it's also a, um, the the other scripture that that Mormons use is the Book of Mormon, where there are, I believe, there's one named woman in the entire book, and uh, so women are sort of non-entities largely, but but it's very clearly spelled out that that a woman's job is to be there for her husband's sake. She exists for her husband's sake. She's there to cheer him. She's there to give him comfort. And she's there to make the home a home. And you're trained from, from birth, essentially, as a, as a young girl, to orient yourself to the needs of the men around you. So when you say that in the Book of Mormon, there's only one named woman, you, is this like in the Bible where you have the Book of John? You mean each book, there's, there's only a name of one or as a character in the Book of Mormon? As a character. So there's only character. one woman in the character in the whole book, potentially. Only one named. Oh, named woman. Named oh, my God. Character. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> are, well, I don't know if that's wise. so much better than the Bible, because the ones that were named in the Bible, they seem to have done a lot of things that were wrong and were being punished, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so. there, was, there were some awesome ones. There was, in the Bible, there was Deborah is a favorite of mine. Um, in the book of Judges, there were no, there were no worthy men to lead the Israelites. And so Deborah became a judge. She led the Israelites. So she's, she was kind of badass. I oh, like that, her. That gives me a different perspective of uh, uh, all my friends named Deborah now. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so, so this concept of womanhood, I was going to say, is then transformed, but you use the term wiving, you know, which uh, which trains you even as a young girl, right? So it's not really there's this transformation, transformation, but it's more accurate to say that it's this training of girls through Absolutely. this concept of wiving. Uh, yeah. And and so how did this training impact you differently than your sister or the girls around you? How how did you end up being different? Um, I think. A major reason is that uh, when I was beginning around seven, I was molested by an older relative. Not a lot older. He was, he was an adolescent. But with all of the shame around sex and the very mixed messages around sex that Sex is, is this gift that you give to your husband. It's part of your purpose as a woman is to gift sex to your husband and presumably to gift your, your virginity. So having, being sullied at such a young age shifted the way I saw myself completely. And all of the shame that, all of the shame that came with it was, I think, a foundational to, to my identity that led me to believe that I was not ever going to be worthy of being the kind of wife that I was meant to be. So in a way, your self-identifying in some ways as an outcast created a path out of your community. Yes. Yes. You know, I feel like lots of people who have that kind of childhood trauma also end up internalizing it and staying within the shame and not speaking it, not naming it, not healing from it, and, you know, having negative outcomes in their lives where um, they remain still. And so yeah. I still, I mean, what I feel like there's still something about, you know, there has to be this, I always look for what is that formula for people to have experiences of trauma and emerge out of it stronger? And why? Because so many people experience trauma, but not everybody has that transformation. Yeah. And that's a really difficult question because I, I don't think it's, it's the same for everybody. There were a lot of ways that I was lucky that my family was already um, kind of on the fringes culturally. In Mormonism, my mother was a poet and my father is an artist. So we were already a little bit separate. And because of that, my education, my, my reading was much wider than I think. Mm, I'm going to backtrack on that a little bit because there is, there is a stereotype of very religious people not being very educated, but actually Utah Mormons tend to be highly educated and widely read. People are surprised about that. But I, I mean, when I was reading your memoir, you know, obviously when you're talking about accessing memories that are from so long ago, it's always amazing to me that there's so much detail 
in the memory. And obviously, in the beginning, you talk about memory <laughs> as well, <laughs> and giving a caveat about that. I, I feel like there might be also, I'm wondering if there's something around being a writer and having that training in reading and analyzing that you had this lens for observing that was helpful for you to sort of compartmentalize and understand, even though you may not have had the words at the time growing up to name what your experience was. Absolutely. I had this, I had this amazing example of my mother writing very personal poetry, which was certainly difficult for me to read when I was a kid. But there was already, I understood that you could turn your life into art. And you could understand the world better by, by understanding your own story. And I saw myself as a, as a writer from a very young age. And I, I didn't see myself as a memoirist. And I actually hated the idea of keeping a journal because Mormons, Mormon girls are told they're very much encouraged to keep journals um, for their descendants. And so I rebelled <laughs> against that. <laughs> but I did write stories from a very young age, and I wrote poetry from a very young age. And of course, fiction draws on your own, on your own narrative. So what was the process of coming to terms with your own sets of being multiple violations in your life, first starting when you were seven with your cousin and then later on? I wasn't really clear from reading when your mother and your family found out. So it, it seemed like she knew, but it wasn't when, you know, was it when you were 10 or when you were a teenager about that first violation? Yeah. I don't know what led her to suspect, but she approached me when I was 12 and asked me if anything had ever happened with any of my relatives, which was, it, it was this gorgeous moment when I thought, oh, wow, that's, it's a real thing and you saw something. I don't know what moved her. But then, of course, when I told her yes, she started to ask who it was. And then she stopped herself. And she said, I don't need to know. Just tell me if he's been through the temple. And the, the Mormon temple is, um, it's kind of a rite of passage when you're, when you're an adult. It's a, a ritual space that you go through and you, there's a, a whole process you have to go through interviews to in, in order to go through the to go through the temple ceremony and i said yes he had been by that point by the time i was 12 and um i said yes he had been and she said okay then he's he's resolved it with heavenly father you know when i read that i actually i totally misinterpreted it i thought being, being through the temple meant like he was dead and so it was okay <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm so glad that you explained that to me. <laughs> um, okay, and and was this before or after your second, third, and fourth wiving experiences? Because those were all when you were 12 and close to 13. Well, when you talk about my great memory, 
that's one of those that's one of those moments where I don't honestly know. There were a lot of things that happened when I was 12. For for whatever reason, that seems to have been an intense year for me. That was the the birthday when my mother sort of announced that I was a young lady now and I could wear my hair in a chignon and and she gave me a, a Harlequin romance for my for my 12th birthday, which I mean I read Ulysses when I was <laughs> when I was 12. <laughs> but um, but yes, there were other around that time I started, I think it was when I was 12, I started opening my window to kiss the paper boy when he would drop off the papers at five in the morning, which in a non-Mormon world might have been kind of a sweet and not shameful story. But because of where we came from, it was extremely shameful. And then that was the year also that I was that I was assaulted, sexually assaulted. I wasn't raped, but I was sexually assaulted on uh, BYU campus. Yeah, and, and the reason I ask is because, you know, I was wondering to what extent your mother's, I don't know if you want to, it's like dismissal, I guess, of your, that conversation about the first wiving with your cousin was, was a catalyst for these other incidents to happen or if those other incidents prompted her to look back for an explanation. But either way, it's clearly a very hard conversation. And you know, this theme around when you first had that experience, you were deciding whether or not you should even share it with your mother. Can you share, tell us what the thoughts were in your mind? Um, my mom was, uh, she was bipolar, but mostly depressive and not well for most of my life, which is not to, um, not to downplay her, her great strengths and, and her force of personality and all of that. But she did have um, real fragility in her health and her mental health. And even at the age of 12, I knew that part of my job was to protect her. And so I was not, it, none of this was something that I felt I could talk with her about until she approached me. And there was a moment when that door opened and I thought, we can talk about this. And then it was shut down immediately because her, her concern was for, was for him and not for me, because that's how she'd been trained. Later on in the book, you also talk about how you blamed her but not your father you know even yeah. though and and you acknowledge that that it was a very one-sided response because mothers are to be blamed and it reminded me of a movie I just saw Daryl Hammond the SNL comedian he has <laughs> a Netflix documentary about his own life of child abuse wow my therapist actually asked me to read, uh, asked me to watch it because it was one of, according to her, one of the best representations of trauma. And Bessel van Kock was on it, author of The Body Keeps the Score. And his therapist, Daryl's therapist, was on it and interviewed as wow. well. 
And wow. and so when you watch, I'll just very briefly give you the synopsis. His father clearly, from the way Darrow described, had PTSD from the war and had a violent, eruptive, unpredictable anger that showed up that generated fear and terror in everybody in the family. Uh-huh. And the mother was physically abusive towards Daryl. I'm not going to go into the details, but but when he looked back, the whole film was his lens of she's the perpetrator. And I was like, what? <laughs> What's going on here? You know, I mean, both yeah. of them were, but I also yeah. saw her as being a victim too. And, yeah. and similarly with your mom, you know, your mom is still a woman who lives in patriar- under a patriarchy under the confines of organized religion. Yes. And and so it was it's this this common theme that women don't even get a break. <laughs> you know, when I mean not that you were not giving your mom a break, but there's that level of but burden that we carry. She didn't get a break. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I, I thought that was interesting because how much of what your mother experienced also was similar to Daryl Hammond's mother because she clearly had undiagnosed postpartum depression and she was even institutionalized. And so this concept of postpartum depression, your mom, her first baby was a stillborn that she was forced to carry to term. How does that trauma impact a woman and then later on having this expectation of giving birth and how disconnected was she already from that point on before her other children were born? I ask this only because I'm not, I'm all about accountability, but I also want to put it in the context of this inevitable system. If this is the system, she's still, this is of course what we're going to expect from mothers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and humans are complicated creatures and um, trying to assign blame is, it's not something that I chose to do in this book. I didn't think that blame was useful for me in understanding my life. There are shifting, shifting responsibilities that all of us in, in my story Every, every character, we all carry some, some kinds of responsibilities that we have, we've not fulfilled in different ways. But the structure is what has made it so difficult for us to break, break through and, and take the responsibilities that, that really belong to us. And I think it, it ends up putting, putting burdens on women that aren't theirs. So now turning to the men, the men that showed up in your life and your relationships, they too also victim blamed you. And there was this consistent pattern, regardless of how close they were or adhere to the, um, you know, Mormon church. Um, And so how, how did that impact you when you were in those relationships? Did you have a consciousness that they, they were engaging in victim blaming, or was it still part of your understanding that this is, this is something that was my fault and under the shame umbrella? It was a, it, a slow, lifelong process. So the shame was 
was vast and deep. And I, I was still working to dismantle it when I was writing the book in my 50s. <laughs> but there were inklings early on. And I, I think, and I don't know where necessarily it came from, but I did early on have inklings that maybe this doesn't entirely belong to me. Maybe there's something bigger that, that I can aspire to. And I had to go to court for this, um, the, the assault when I was 12. It wasn't until three years later that it went to trial. And it was not, I did not make the choice, which definitely that falls under the shame umbrella. <laughs> um, I thought that I, I had brought it on myself. It's better to just forget that it ever happened and don't talk about it. But I was able to recognize it came to, to court because I saw him near a friend of mine. He showed up at my high school talking to a friend of mine. And I told her because I recognized that what happened to me wasn't right. And I didn't want it to happen to her. Just the idea that there's an external system out there, the criminal justice system, there's a court that adjudicates, you know, behavior. And if they are saying this person's behavior is wrong and we have a process for deciding what the punishment should be if it's decided that he's done something wrong, doesn't that also validate that your experience was not your fault? Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> it was terrifying. It was terrifying. Um, when I found out that this had been reported to the police and it was now being handled in this, in this external system, my father knew about it. My father called me at school to find out if it had, had actually happened. I felt like I was naked. I'm interested in knowing if you had any support, like victim advocates with you to help you prepare, and were they there to help sort of talk your parents and family down? <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, I, I worked with a policewoman who, she, she went undercover as, as an underage girl. She, she looked young. And he tried the same thing with her, but she, she didn't work with my family so much, but she kind of took me under her wing. And I actually spent a Christmas with her rather than a, a Christmas Eve with her rather than with my family, because I felt, felt really safe and really seen by her. Wow. That's really encouraging. That's like the first yeah. positive story of <laughs> like trusting the <laughs> yeah. police or per, yeah. someone it, part of that system. Um, but of course, it turned out to be a female officer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she, was, she was fantastic. And this was, the, um, this was the campus police. This wasn't the city police. Wow. And, yeah. and, and so this, this concept of rape culture where girls are at fault 
shows up in this comment that one of your girlfriends said, where if rape happens once, she was raped. If it happens more than once, it's the woman's fault. Yeah. That's really interesting if you contrast that to statements that your mother made when you were young, looking back in your childhood, and she characterizes your behavior, even as a baby or as a toddler, as flirting, right? I put that in air quotes. Yeah. Flirting has a sexual connotation to me. I don't know what the actual definition is, but I'm sure that babies and toddlers don't have that cognitive (laughs) awareness to recognize that that's a deliberate act that they're engaging in. And so just this projection of sexuality onto a young child and not recognizing sort of the contributions of that to the outcome. Yeah, yeah. How did you feel when you heard that, when you were writing that flirting comment? Because you also acknowledged it as if you agreed. Yeah. I, I spent most of my life accepting this story and saying, well, yeah, I was a flirt. I was born a flirt. I was inviting sexual attention from the time I was an infant, apparently. <laughs> um, I completely bought this. And I completely bought that, that it was not possible for me to be innocently friendly toward a man. Or I could be innocently friendly if he treated me as if it was innocent. But if he acted as though I had, or rather if he acted in such a way uh, <laughs> I'm trying, to, I'm trying to figure out the right way to phrase this. Um, if he acted on his own desire toward me, then clearly whatever signals I was giving out were not innocent. So if go- there's the victim blaming again, like a man can't have control over his own emotions and desires. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was only in recent years with my therapist where she said, I I told her this story about how mom had always said that I was born flirting. And my therapist just sort of looked at me and said, really? (laughs) (laughs) So, so let's talk about that therapy. You, you spoke about two moments in your life where there's a consciousness around you being a victim. One was when the doctor who examined you, you saw later on, years later, on the medical records, the word rape in block letters at the top of the medical records, and then another time in therapy. And so I'm wondering, like, were those just peaks in consciousness, awareness around this system of lack of accountability, this this system where, you know, men get away with violating women and it's expected? Or were they just moments of light that helped kind of open the door to greater recognition? If it hadn't been for people like that doctor, like a couple of the therapists that I've had in my life who have been outsiders looking in and saying, this isn't right. I don't know that I ever could have imagined myself out of believing that I 
brought everything on my onto myself. But it hadn't been for those people from the outside recognizing it as not right. If you were to extend that thought, would you be in favor of teaching about these, about consent in schools, for example, so that children have the understanding, uh, awareness, maybe even the language to describe these behaviors if they were to experience them? Absolutely. Um, I mean, that, that schools are not necessarily the best place, but if it's not going to come from the family, let it come from the school. And I can think of young women that I know who have been, who have been very consciously told from the time they were little that their bodies belong to them and that nobody gets to do anything to their bodies without their permission. And, um, and they're growing up with this marvelous consciousness that any kind of violation of that right to their body is a violation. It's an interruption of um, what is theirs. And that's what I think everybody should understand from a very young age. And you are then inoculated largely against the shame of somebody violating that because you get already from a young age, you get the story that you get to choose. So when you have this story and it's violated, you understand it's not your fault. You can then bring in other people to help. You can then call on your community to help. And you don't have to bear it by yourself in shame. Well, I totally agree with that. On the flip side, it's also a disservice to girls to send them that message and raise them with that empowered you know, sense of agency, but then not have a system to be able to respond. Right. <laughs> so when when yeah. we still have rape culture and police, when we still have documentaries like Unbelievable and you know yeah. 2018 and Supreme Court, hundreds, hundreds of rape tests, test, it's exactly. Yeah. So that yeah. that disconnect creates this institutional betrayal that that then creates more harm <laughs> for us emotionally and psychologically and physically. And so I think you know a lot of uh, what I really wanted to learn from you is how do you step outside of a world that shapes who you are and your worth and not let it bother you, not let it shape you? Because you you talk so much about being liked and the need for being liked as a girl, the need for obviously, you know, many girls have adopted traits of femininity in order to get male attention and that's you know gives them their worth but we know that as we age and for those who may not be you know traditionally um beautiful and attractive there may be uh, some who are differently abled there's going to be less attention and in theory we shouldn't have less value as a person so how do we build our self-worth and this um this sort of inoculation from patriarchy it's certainly not something that an individual can do alone. It can't be done on an individual basis. It has to come from a community. 
it has to come with change in the culture, which is painful and difficult to do and takes far too long. But it's, you can only swim against the tide for so long and, and individuals can swim against the tide. But if we want to change that story, we have to change the culture and we have to change the community. For people who are very deeply shaped by their religious communities, maybe not necessarily being part of the Mormon community, uh, where you know religion has historically played a very central role in gender policing mm-hmm. and reinforcing traditional gender stereotypes and roles, how do you navigate spirituality and religion? <laughs> You don't ask small questions. <laughs> I'm trying to get you to give me the answer to life, Caitlin, so I can solve this problem, how to end sexism. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it is a great question because belief is essential to many people. It's central to many people's worlds and i don't want to to minimize um somebody's belief structure but my mom and i used to talk about we used to talk about the position of women in mormonism and there are pockets in in many religions i won't say all but there are pockets in many religions of people who are trying to change it from within. And there are women who are trying to change the Mormon church from within. I left it. My, my own belief system is not any longer in concert with that, (laughs) but uh, I am hopeful that change can happen. Again, it's slow and it's painful, um, but we've seen, we've seen women gain the priesthood in, in some uh, religions. I don't see it immediately on the, on the horizon for Mormonism, but it's just important to, to keep that conversation open and not to, not to patronize uh, people of faith. Well, you know, there are some people who are who I've come across in the social justice movement, and certainly Rebecca Solnit's book, Hope in the Dark, is all about anybody working in in trying to make transformative change in culture and society has to have a sense of faith, that hope is by itself transformative because we believe that there could be something different. So I've heard a lot of people who are on the religious left who who started out as atheists and they then became attached to some faith because they realized that they weren't able to sustain their work in social justice without some level of faith work as well. Interesting. So that's why I asked you because I don't know if you follow, do you know who John Pavlovitz is? Uh, I know the name, but I... He's part of the Christian left. Oh, yeah. And, And he has a blog. He has a very prominent social media 
presence. Uh, I don't want to identify as Christian, but I follow the people in in the religious left, and and he's very he's very much about being authentic to himself, and uh, very vocal about his opposition to Trump and the behaviors that he's engaged in as being immoral and unchristian. Nice. He sometimes, yeah. if I recall correctly, he might use curse words even, which is surprising, <laughs> right? For a pastor, he's a pastor. <laughs> but but that actually is something that would make me want to explore him more because yeah. there's this common language, I think, regardless of religion, there's this common language of morality, you know, that we know what should be right or wrong if we're hurting yeah. someone. And, um, and so actually, I, it, yeah, go ahead. Uh, it was part of part of my my world opening was uh, when I lived in Hawaii. I worked for uh, a Catholic university. I wrote I wrote for the edited the literary magazine and uh, wrote a couple of things for the president, who was the first woman president of a university in Hawaii. And this was, it was a Marianist university and the Marianist order, it's a, it's a monastic order, but they're very much left social justice. And it was with, with my monk colleagues <laughs> that we, we protested the first Gulf war or the, the second Gulf war, the desert storm. And she was, uh, President Sue was wonderful to work with. We talked a lot about their Marianists. So they take Mary not as, not as a distant figure held up on a, on a pedestal, but as, as an example of somebody who is capable and somebody who made her own way. And, and we, Embrace that, and I got to I got to play with that idea a lot when writing, say, letters from President Sue, and and that was that was really marvelous to see that these more less harmful gender ideas could happen within a religious context, and yeah, it's it's necessary not to um, to not alienate. Going back to the role of the church in policing gender as a way to ensure the longevity of the family unit. What is your relationship now with the word motherhood as it connects to womanhood? (laughs) It's another trivial question. Yeah, I mean, it's so fraught because there's so much almost fetishization around motherhood as part of the eternal feminine, and and that was something that I that I certainly internalized. So that when I had to have a hysterectomy, lost the ability to have children, I for a time felt. Like I had, I had lost my sense of gender, and um, and those two things are not; they are certainly related. 
obviously, um, from a biological standpoint, of course. But, um, but I think there's, there's a larger understanding of motherhood. You can understand it from um, a metaphorical standpoint, which as a writer, I love metaphors. And from a metaphorical standpoint, anybody can be a mother. Anybody can, can feed off and can, can, can foster a maternal idea. And uh, in the same way that I feel like I've been able to have a maternal relationship with people who did not come from my womb and maternal relationship with people who are there. There are men who have been in maternal relations toward me who have cared for me like a mother in certain ways. So I think that our imaginations need to expand. I actually agree with everything you just said. It's an idea that I'm still struggling with because, you know, in the um, radical feminist movement, there's opposition to degendering language. And one of the words that they want to degender is motherhood. And they want to call it parent instead of mother. Uh-huh. Uh, not radical feminists, but amongst trans activists, right? And so that's something that radical feminists oppose. And I think that from the, from the perspective of mother and father not being attached to biology, but this concept of mother being regenerative, and yeah. father does, it doesn't have the same, that we need to keep that word. I mean, beyond like the social, you know, political need <laughs> to, you know, still identify yeah. like the ways in which mothers and women are being discriminated against. But, but other than that, I feel like, you know, like you said, it's, it's mothering can be done by anyone. Yes. And, and, uh, and not to put my foot in, in a big political mess, but, but um, absolutely trans women are women. And trans women can be mothers. And we can use that word. Parenting is also a great word. If we want to, if we want to remove gender from it, also a great word. But I want to be very clear about that. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that gender identity is real. And this concept of, you, you talked about, like, the biology being determinative of identity. So women who, you know, you haven't, because of your hysterectomy, you haven't given birth. Um, But even if you didn't have it, you were still struggling with the idea of whether you want it to parent biologically or even otherwise. Yeah. And I I mean, the person who comes to mind because she shows up in celebrity news most often is Jennifer Aniston. (laughs) You know, she's been very prominent in talking about, like, why is everybody asking me if I'm pregnant and Uh waiting for me to get pregnant? And women should not be defined by whether or not my value as a woman should not be defined by whether or not I end up having a child or not. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. These are questions that I think are really important for, for every woman to feel comfortable answering for herself because. If they don't have answers to it, then the external gets in the way, like that you, yeah. that you were describing, you know, throughout your book. And so I'm wondering, 
looking back at all of the messages that um, the metaphors for femininity, the expectations around wiving, et cetera, how much of that is still with you? <laughs> um, that you struggle against consciously. Yeah, it's, um, I still have to pay attention to what my face is doing. So no angry I'm, bitch face, in other words. Oh, no, a, wait, not that wasn't the, what's the phrase? Angry rest, rest face? Uh, face? Resting, oh, resting bitch face. Rest, resting bitch face, okay. Resting <laughs> We're going to have to. <laughs> I don't have resting bitch face. Bitch face is a choice for me. <laughs> I have to consciously do it. My resting face is Utah nice, which is not helpful. <laughs> In what way? Um, Utah nice is sort of a really almost aggressively friendly sort of face. And people take it as an invitation. It's not meant as an invitation. In the same way, resting bitch face is not meant to piss somebody else off. It's just what your face does. When my face is at rest, it looks friendly, sometimes to an extreme. <laughs> and, uh, and Europeans, actually, I, I've had to practice tamping it down because Europeans, especially like in, in Czech Republic, they found that very untrustworthy because I looked like I want something. But uh, in Utah, it's everybody runs around with this super friendly, big smile face. Which, by the way, to New Yorkers, makes us feel untru- makes you untrustworthy. <laughs> yes, yes. <Right>? So. <laughs> <laughs> it's still a conscious effort to turn that off. I have turned it down a great deal as I've gotten older. But but why try? Why respond? What is this? This one sided. Nobody has this term for men. No, no. Nobody even characterizes their facial expressions. No, they don't. They don't. I, you know, I, I moved here and my, my friends who live here said, you know, if you'll notice the women look, look, like they're, look like they're tasting something bad here because it's the only way, it's like the only defense against the, the men who are just outright leering and can be fairly aggressive. And that's not something that, that my face does very comfortably. And yeah, all of these calculations, men do not have to make these calculations. They don't have to be aware of what their face is doing at any moment. Unless, okay, you don't want to look like a rube when you're in the big city. You don't want to look like, you know, somebody can just steal your wallet. That's about it. It's not that constant you know, I feel like, I also feel like I, I can't look too bitchy toward a man because that's also dangerous. Yeah. So, so basically women just have to always negotiate our safety. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to being a woman is hazardous. Yes. And so this actually brings me to one of my final questions before we go into the uh, engendered questionnaire. You use the term gush several times yeah. in the book. And when I first saw it, I 
I, I just felt like, oh, this is going to come up again, right, this theme. And and for me, I saw the, the word gush as a metaphor for the literal, which was the blood. Yeah. But also for the emotional, for everything that you were suppressing, the pain, the trauma, and yourself. And so to what extent is your life now and can you offer to girls and women listening to this episode a negotiation between stopping that dam and letting it flow freely? (laughs) I'm in one of the best moments of my life right now. I'm 52 years old and I live by myself and it's delicious. It's delicious. And the, the, the gush right now is this heartfelt, absolute, I, I have this freedom because I have all of this gorgeous time alone. I have the freedom to go deeply into, I'm very much into sensory experience and my sensory experiences now are the, the smell of the air when I hang my laundry out on the line because nobody here has a dryer, watching the steam rise from my clothing, where my pleasure is mine. And I've negotiated for so long this, this thought that it's selfish to have pleasure that is just mine. But it's freed me up in a lot of ways. It's also freed me up to make different kind of communities than I, than I had when I was completely focused on the men in my life. And now I have closer female friendships. And I have close friendships with kids. I have all these different flavors of love now that I get to enjoy that I think the very Western idea or the very this culture idea of that focused in couplehood where you lose yourselves into each other is actually quite limiting. There's such uh, so much a larger world of love out there. Wow. So you basically just debunked one of the statements in your book where you were talking about the Adam and Eve story. So thank you for that. You were, so what, what you said in the book was that women gain status from becoming a wife and outside of that world, what exists is loneliness. And so you're basically saying, no, you can be thriving outside of yeah. the context of being a wife. <laughs> yeah, I did not know. <laughs> And that's the secret, I think. We need to tell young girls that you could still be happy and thrive and find joy outside of that. So thank you so much. So at the end of every episode, we ask a series of questions of every guest. It's called the Engendered Questionnaire. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? So there are a few levels to this. There is... There's straight up physical survival, the survival of individuals, the survival of large groups of women and femme identified people. There's 
a layer up from there is a sense of self, the ability to imagine yourself as a full human and to have your an imagination that is untouched by trauma and untouched by this expectation that your your life is meant to please somebody else and then the next level up i think is our straight up survival as a species um <laughs> we haven't talked it's not my not my uh, subject is my subject is not um climate change but it's you've you've done in some of your podcasts in the past that um that's very much feminist issue as well and the only way that we can adapt ourselves is if we can break down our gendered structures what gives you hope young people <laughs> um yeah i'm meeting i'm meeting young people who have completely exploded my imagination around gender and it's that's it that's it it's generation z <laughs> and final question what can we do more of less of start or stop to end gender based violence and oppression my bias is stories of course and my book talks about the limits of the stories that we have now but my next one i would like it to be a new story and i want more stories that push our imaginations and grow our imaginations and help us create entirely new structures thank you so much caitlin i enjoyed talking to you very much thank you i loved talking with you thank you so much Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDo at Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join CanDo at Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast@gmail.com with your questions.